All right, good evening, everybody. Have a seat. Come on in. Okay, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out and turn to the book of Galatians tonight. So we're getting into a section in our Bible where these books are going to go really fast. So there's 146 verses in Galatians. And uh, just for comparison, like Matthew has over 1,100 verses. So we're going to be getting through these really quick. And I'm very excited. This is sort of a kind of a new thing that we're doing as far as uh, kind of getting away from those longer books. And we're going to be getting into these letters of Paul, of course, first and second Corinthians were letters of Paul, but those were uh, those were longer too. So, um, yeah, we're not going to have a, a lot of time to get too comfortable in these books, but these books, I believe, are going to give us a amazing insight um, into the things that God wants us to know, particularly for the book of Galatians. This book, we're calling it the Glorious Gospel of Grace. Yeah, exactly. And um, so this is a defense of the gospel, and it's also an attack on any sort of works-based righteousness or anyone or any religion or any attempt to try to be right with God through our works. So um, I think we're going to find it... uh, very helpful and encouraging. And so i just give you a little backdrop here. Paul is writing this letter to a group of churches in the area of Galatia. So unlike, say, for example, Corinthians, that was a specific church in Corinth, Galatians is written to a group in an area. So it'd be maybe similar to writing a letter to the churches of Denton County or something like that. So um, these are churches founded by Paul on um, his missionary journeys that we looked at when we went through the book of Acts. Uh, The reason that this area is called Galatia is because the people that are living there actually migrated from France in an area called Gaul, G-A-U-L. And so the people in this area, which uh, is, is actually in what we would know as Turkey, central Turkey, but uh, the Bible refers it to as, as Asia Minor. So these are the churches in Asia Minor, um, what we know as Turkey. These are churches founded by Paul. And what would happen with Paul is he would go in to start a church in a city on his missionary journeys. Uh, we saw that when we went through the book of Acts. He would, he would go in and usually go to the synagogue. He would preach the gospel, and they would either accept it or receive it. Um, many times their rejection of him by the Jews also meant that there were Gentiles that would receive it. And so these churches would be established. He would stay there for a little bit, train up the leadership, and then he'd go on to the next one. Subsequently to that, what would happen is 
Behind Paul would usually be a group of people called Judaizers. These were people from Jerusalem, from the church at Jerusalem, which were people who were not fully convinced of the grace of Jesus Christ that would make one acceptable to God. And so they would go behind Paul to these churches that he established and they would say that all that you believe, that's all fine and good, but only the Jews could be saved. So you have to be a Jew to be able to be saved. So they would bring in a extra requirement to what was preached by Christ and preached by the apostles that one could be saved by grace through faith, not of works. The Judaizers would say, that's okay, the grace by faith thing, if you want to do that, but then let, you have to have the works also. So this is something that we see in our culture, in our society as well. Every uh, cult or false religion will add something in to grace that one would have to do some sort of work or religious requirement or man-made effort or something you'd have to do. So uh, this book is going to be very helpful, one, for our own personal edification, but also, it's going to be very helpful in our discussions with many people that believe that you have to do something other than or subsequent to receiving the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So th this is what we're going to look at uh, in the next couple weeks or so. So let's dive right in. This uh, a book, a custom, customary greeting, but what's interesting is in this letter that Paul's writing, he doesn't have anything good to say about the churches that he's writing to, which is even in even the Corinthian church, he had good things, positive things to commend them about, not these churches. And he goes right into, you can tell he's, he's pretty upset about what's going on. He goes right into that. So in verse one, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me. So in Paul's greeting, it's interesting because he's identifying his credentials and his calling that they didn't come from man. And part of that is to combat the idea of um, apostolic succe succession, where you have, like, for example, the Catholic Church started with Peter, and then you have a succession of men that have gone through to where we have our, our Pope now, but they have succeeded in their modern-day living apostles speaking for God, and what they say is the voice of God. They are the authority. So Paul is saying, my authority came from God himself. He's saying he was called to do what he's doing and called to be what he is. God has call, had called him 
to do that. And then notice he, he identifies sort of the substantiation of who Christ is and the authority that he has from Christ is his resurrection. So the resurrection was that in which authenticates everything that Christ said and everything that he did and the authority that Christ had. The resurrection gives us the evidence and the proof of who he is and what he says is being from God completely and totally as Jesus himself is the word. He says in verse 3, grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So right off the bat here in, the, in verse 4, you see the emphasis that he puts on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's important. He says, who gave himself for our sins. So sins being pointed, pointed out as the problem that in which separates man from God and the solution that it was Jesus who gave himself as the purpose and the reason for the cross. It was to deliver us, he says, deliver. It's an interesting word. So when you think about deliver, it means that we were caught in a position that we could do nothing about, that we needed outside help to get us out of the condition that we're in. And through Jesus Christ, it says that we've been delivered, set free from sin and bondage. And what Paul's going to get to is that we've been set free from works-based righteousness. So we've been delivered from that system even of Judaism, that system of atonement for sins through the animal sacrifice or any sort of system even now that we would uh, that that would be in a religious setting that would say that that by this act you are atoning for your sin by something that you're doing or this continual repetitive act you're you're atoning for your sin over and over again and and so I believe Paul is choosing his words very carefully to really lay the foundation for what it means to truly be saved, that we've been delivered from a system or workspace righteousness, a man-made righteousness, a self-righteousness. We've been delivered from those systems. We've been delivered from any sort of religion that keeps us in bondage that would say you have to do this and you have to fulfill that in order to be right with God. We've been delivered from that and, and we've been delivered, most importantly, from our sins that separate us from God. But notice, he says, from this present evil age as well. So this deliverance 
has also allowed us to be in a place where in this world we can live for God now. So this world, the Bible says that this world, it's compared to a dominion of darkness under the power and sway of the enemy. And the Bible tells us how to live free from that power, how to live free even though we're in this world, not to be of this world. And it's living through Jesus Christ. He's going to explain that. But what an amazing life that a Christian has to be free from the power of sin in this world, to have Jesus living inside of us, to have a future in heaven guaranteed, and to know Christ personally, being delivered from every sort of attempt to reach God, the exhaustion of trying to be a good person and trying to be good, trying to even satisfy and fulfill our hearts. And through Christ, we've been delivered from that so that we can live in this world free and for God. That's the, that's the result of being a Christian. We can live for God because we're free to do that, delivered from the bondage of sin and religious systems. So now he gets right into the problem. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him. Notice that's really important. They're turning from him. That's referring to Jesus. But watch how that happens. Who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. So from when we turn to a different gospel, we're turning away from Christ himself. We're turning away from the relationship. We're turning away from the freedom. And we're actually turning back into bondage or slavery to something other than Christ who came to free us. So Paul's writing this letter. It says he's marveling. He's just, he can't, can't believe it. I'm, I'm so surprised he would be saying, I'm so shocked that you've turned away from God to a, a different gospel. In verse 7, he says, it's not another gospel. Why is that important? The Mormons say, literally, they have another book of Jesus Christ, another revelation of Jesus Christ. But they're not the only ones. Anybody, any religion, any deliverer or messenger of any way to be right with God other than that has been given to us and that we find in the word of God, it's, 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 it's another. It's not the same thing. It's not just another shade or another variation. Be careful of that. Be careful when people 
come to you as angels of light with another gospel or another version or another way to look at it. All those are red flags. All those are get behind me, Satan. Because all of those are turning one away from the truth and away from Jesus Christ. He says in verse 7, It's not another, but there are some who trouble you. So that this the gospel has come through people who have come to these churches and they said, hey, look, the stuff that Paul said, well, you realize that you have to be a Jew. And the, these were Gentile churches or not, non-Jewish churches. And, and they're saying, that's great, the Jesus thing, and he rose from the dead, and he died for your sins, but you have to be Jewish to be saved. Well, what would that mean? Well, this would be really bad news. You'd have to get circumcised if you're a man. That's not a good news gospel. You have to keep the holy days. You have to do the water purifications. You have to keep the ordinances and all the things that are, are in the Torah. And, and the good news that they had received now all of a sudden is becoming tainted and poisoned. This other gospel in verse 7 has been brought to them by people who trouble them. And it says, to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. That word pervert means to corrupt. Verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven, which the Mormons say the angel Moroni brought this message to Joseph Smith. Even if we or an angel from heaven preach another gospel to you than what you have or what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. So this is not any sort of thing where you can say, oh, they're sincere they're nice, they're trying to do a good thing too, and what they're doing is corrupting the only way that one can go to heaven. It says let them be accursed. That means excommunicated. That means they are outside the pale of truth. That means that they are under damnation for their sins, and even worse, they are causing other people to go to damnation through their false gospel. That's why this is so serious. This is why Paul is so upset. That's why he's not saying any uh, really positive things about this church because he just can't believe that they just went down this road so easy. That their, their theology, the roots of their theology were so shallow that that just uh, any Johnny come lately that would, would come and say, hey, we got a, another one too. You could have yours, but we have another one. You, we could add ours to yours. And the minute you do that, you've corrupted the truth. And when we corrupt the truth, these are essential. This is an essential doctrine. This is hitting right at the core of what's important in regards to our salvation. 
So he says, let them be accursed. He says in verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, then what you have received, let him be accursed. So he says it again for emphasis. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Thank God that God gave Paul the strength and the boldness to stand up to these people. Otherwise, who knows, but Christianity, they're trying to make it into just a sect of Judaism. When the reality is that Christianity is, is not Judaism. Christianity is a new work that God has done in the new covenant, new relationship that we have with God. And the old covenant led us up to that point. But Jesus came to fulfill the law so that we can be free from works and a work-based righteousness in Christ. As he's marveling at these churches and how easy it was for them to depart from this gospel, remember that the, the gospel that Jesus preached was good news and it was good news because it was freeing and it was because of everything that Christ has done for us. And because no matter what anybody has ever done, if they would put their faith in Jesus Christ, that they would be saved. And subsequent to their salvation, they would now be free to walk with, serve, and enjoy God. The highest purpose of man is to do that. That we'd be free from sin and darkness and all those things that destroy a man's soul. And we can walk in the newness of life. This is why you get this idea that Paul is so upset. He is upset that these people that have come to preach a false gospel to bring his converts, that he spent time and effort, he cared for these people, he loved these people, he no doubt experienced the freedom that they had in Christ when they came to Christ, and now he's hearing that they're following after a workspace righteousness. In verse 10, Paul is saying that his courage to stand up to this has come from the fact that what he does is before God and not before men. He wasn't concerned about how popular he was. He wasn't concerned about his own life. He wasn't concerned about what people might say about him. He was simply concerned about honoring God by serving God truly and sincerely in the calling that God had for him. Now, talk about freedom, right? You want to live your life free? Just live for God. 
If you do that, there are people that aren't going to like it, and there are going to be people that do like it. doesn't matter. When you live for God, you're completely free from others' opinions, others' insults, others' thoughts and ideas. It doesn't matter as long as you're walking before God. But if you are walking before God, there will also be fruit, spiritual fruit that comes out of your life. In verse 11, it says, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Isn't it interesting? These false gospels, they, to me, they seem like, that'd be something I would make up. You know, and a lot of them seem like they're made up um, by men. Because you look at, like, what happens, what you get when you get to heaven by a lot of these false religions. Like, oh, that seems, really seems like a man made that up. <laughs> I won't get into that too much, but <laughs> man... The gospel is so amazing that man could not have made it up. In fact, to many religious people, the gospel is very offensive to them because they, they can't understand how God would lower himself to become a man. They can't understand how the God that lowered himself to become a man then died on the cross for sins that just doesn't equate to the way things work and the way we think it's something that the love of God generated the gospel is generated in the heart of God because of the love of God and it is the love of God that we see on display through the gospel that's why it's good news it's good news because by grace we are saved. By everything that he's done for us, we're saved through faith, not of works, lest any man boast. It's, it's just the best thing that could ever happen. It's, it's a free gift of eternal life. It's the only way out of our sin and darkness. It's just the great, greatest thing and the only thing that... The only way that could have happened is it comes from the heart and the mind of God, God himself. The gospel reveals the heart of God towards man. So in verse 13, it says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Now, if, if you, you read through the, the Gospels and you look at how Jesus was treated, treated by the Pharisees and how they just continually wanted to get rid of him, it says that they are jealous of him. But they, they are just murderously angry at him. But they thought they were doing something good. Isn't that something? 
they thought they were being righteous. They thought they were protecting the religion that was given to them by God through Moses and down through the ages. But many religious people can kill in the name of God and think they're doing a good thing. How do you combat that? Even the Apostle Paul, he thought he was doing a a, a right thing by killing Christians. It shows you that religion that is from man is, is evil and destructive. And here Paul is saying he was like that. So nobody is beyond the reach of salvation. But did you notice he, is he said that he was doing it for traditions? Traditions are powerful. Traditions that are handed down through the ages, that are set in stone, that people make a living off of, that people build big buildings for, that someone to come and preach the gospel in a way that says your traditions don't mean anything. You can see how a threat that is. It costs people their livelihood. Imagine spending your whole life as a priest or a rabbi studying and going to school and serving and and then someone comes and says, those traditions don't save you. These buildings don't save you. These rituals don't save you. You can only be saved through faith in Christ and Christ alone. So when you say that, you, you can sort of get the idea of, one, why the Pharisees hated him so much, because he basically undermined their whole religion and said they don't need that anymore. And you imagine, you know, thousands of years of tradition. But same thing happened um, with Luther coming against uh, the Catholic Church. And people during that time that they would translate the Bible into a language that people could read, those were the ones killed on the stakes. Those were the ones hated, the ones who were trying to bring the truth, the word of God to the people. And so this really can get into some sticky areas, some very uncomfortable areas. But what we have to understand as we, as we work through this book is it can't be both. And that's what a lot of religions try to do. It's either grace or it's works. It can't be both. And if it's works, then Jesus made it very clear we have to be perfect. We have to never have sinned. Basically, nobody's, nobody qualifies except for Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying himself, I understand those false teachers that are coming because I was one of them. And I didn't understand, and I was zealous, he says, verse 15. He says, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. 
I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. What does that mean? When he first got saved, he didn't ask any people, any person about it. This was God to him directly. It started um, in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus when Paul was on his way to kill Christians, to drag them out of their homes and to imprison them. And he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. It was the love of Christ that he encountered. And Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Paul didn't realize he was persecuting Christ as he was going about persecuting the people of Christ. But when one persecutes the people of Christ, they persecute Christ himself. Paul was awakened in that moment, you could say. He was arrested in his heart. And I believe this work, the work of preparation for this moment, I believe, began as he stood and watched Stephen preach Christ. And as he's preaching Christ, Stephen's clothes were laid at Paul's feet. Paul was a participant in the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. And as Paul would watch Stephen there, knowing that he was part of what was going on, as they would take rocks and throw them at Stephen, I believe Paul's heart started to soften as he saw the love of Christ being worked out in a human's heart. He saw the courage and the boldness of Stephen. He did not get saved there, but I believe that set the stage for him when he was on the road to Damascus and he met Christ personally. I believe he was being convicted in his heart about the incident of Stephen. And when Christ appeared to him, and he was asked, why are you persecuting me? I believe it, it was like a knife to his heart when he realized what, what Stephen was going through. And then he realized that he was doing that to Christ. And in that moment, if you remember in Acts chapter 9, in that moment, he said, what do you want me to do? This was Paul offering himself to Christ. That's what it's like when we offer ourselves to Christ. We're broken. We're undone. The love of Christ compels us. And there's nothing else we can say is, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm yours. And from that moment, he went to Damascus. He was blind. And then we're going to find out he went to Arabia to be personally discipled by Christ. 
So in verse 16, it says, to reveal his son in me, that I might preach, I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were the apostles before me. So Jerusalem was where Peter was and James was. This is where you would think, oh, he became a Christian, so now you go to Jerusalem to find out all about it. That's where the first church was. And he said, I didn't do that. I didn't go and, and talk about, tell me the gospel, help me understand it. He didn't do that. That's what he's saying. But what he did do, he, as he said, it says he went to Arabia and then he returned to Damascus after that. The point he's making is that he was saved directly by Christ himself and then taught and given the gospel directly by Christ himself. And that is the authority that he's presenting here to us. So in verse 18... He says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, and I remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. That was the pastor, if you will, of the church in Jerusalem. He says in verse 20, now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they were hearing only, they're hearing about Paul, but they never seen him. The churches in Judea would be the churches of that would spring out from the church in Jerusalem around that area. So they were hearing, but he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And it says, and they glorified God in him. So then he says in chapter 2, he says, now after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barabbas and I also took Titus with me. So at this time, there is the church at Jerusalem and the other or the main headquarters was the church in Antioch, which was actually in Syria. And that's where Paul was much of his time. Paul was there. He mentioned Titus. Titus was with him. Titus was Greek, and he was a convert to Christianity and spent a lot of time with Paul. Barnabas was there at the church at Antioch in Syria, and it was from that church Paul was sent out on his missionary tours and his missionary journey. So you kind of have like now developing two power structures of the church. You have the church at Jerusalem and you have the church at Antioch. The church at Jerusalem, that's where the Judaizers were coming, following Paul and telling people that they have to become Jews in order to be saved. They're coming from that church. But in Acts chapter 15, 
there is a big showdown. You could read that for homework tonight or tomorrow, but there's a big showdown. And the showdown was, in fact, the early church dis discovering and dialoguing and discussing, do you have to be a Jew to be saved? And when they're saying that, they're saying, are, are Gentiles or non-Jews, are they welcome? And does one have to go through the rituals of Judaism to be saved? And the, everything was settled at the Jerusalem Council, and, the, and, and there was no, you don't have to do that. But that was a, a big moment in the history of the church in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. And so Paul is talking about this. As he went up to Jerusalem, he went with uh, Barnabas and Titus. And he says, I went up by revelation and I communicated to them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. What he's saying is he's being respectful in the way that he handled this confrontation about the true gospel. He's saying he didn't want to go there and not go through the right channels and talk to the right people first. So when he went to Jerusalem, he would be going south from Antioch in Syria. He'd be going from north to south, and he'd go to Jerusalem. He had Barnabas with him and Titus, and he first went to the leaders of the church. And he went to them and said, hey, I've been going around preaching this gospel to the Gentiles, and these Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit. They're getting saved. This message is going out all throughout this area in Asia Minor. And he's telling them, and the, the leadership in Jerusalem, they thought that was great. They are very excited and happy for what was going on. In verse 3, it says, Yet not even Titus, who is with me, being Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So he's saying at this Jerusalem council, Titus was with me. They didn't even say, well, Titus has to be circumcised. Like, you can have your gospel, but Titus has to be circumcised. And he's using that as saying, hey, even at the Jerusalem council with the leaders of the Jerusalem church, we've all, all agreed it is by grace you are saved through faith, not of works. You don't have to be Jewish to be saved. And, you know, this is a very heavy thing right in the beginning of Christianity. In verse 4, he says, And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. So there's the group of people being referred to. And it's, it's always interesting that somebody who's legalistic will have a hard time with the simplicity of the gospel message. And they'll look for, like these secret people who went to follow Paul around and see they wanted to catch him. 
They wanted to find something that would give them reason to blame or point the finger. They were stealthy, they were secret, and what they didn't realize is they were coming against God himself. They were trying to snatch the seed of the gospel. And notice, one way you know that this is happening is he points out how they wanted to bring those people who were free and had liberty back into bondage. So you might face a legalist sometime. And you'll know they're a legalist when they start to put some extra trip on you, some extra burden. You, you, you feel, you'll feel yucky around them because they'll say certain things that'll make you feel like your salvation in Christ is not enough. You have to do this and subscribe to that and do their thing and When you start to feel that way, you're starting to get into legalism because that's bondage. That's what we've been freed from. And so be very careful because we don't want to be like the churches in Galatia that so easily allowed people to put heavy burdens on them and trips on them and says, you need to do this if you're serious about your faith. You need to do that. And and then you start to feel like, oh man, I don't, I don't, I don't know about that. And then you start to feel like, I don't even know if I want to go to church or read my Bible. Or you start to get into this legalistic trip. Just be very careful about that. Anything that brings you into more bondage is not what Christ came to set us free from. In verse 5, it says, To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. These big shots that were supposedly coming and trying to teach these different doctrines. He said, it doesn't mean anything to me. God shows no personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something, they added nothing to me. So Paul wasn't intimidated, nor should we. We shouldn't take someone's credentials or how many books they've written or how many followers they are or how many TV programs they're on. If you want to find out a lot of false doctrine and a lot of false prophets, they're the ones doing those things a lot of times. They're the, a lot of times the ones on TV and the ones writing the most books and things like that. But Paul says, I don't, I don't care about that. He had full confidence in his own personal relationship with God. Verse 7, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, so uncircumcised is just a non-Jew, circumcised is for the Jew, 
verse 8, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, this is the Jerusalem church, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So the Jerusalem church, Paul is saying, and the Antioch church, they're in full agreement, the leadership of both of what the gospel is. It was these extra people, these side people that would come and try to undermine people. But the leadership at those churches, Acts chapter 15, is the explanation of that. They're in agreement, and Paul's appealing to that. There's just one gospel. It doesn't matter if you're in Jerusalem. doesn't matter if you're in Syria. It doesn't matter if you're in Africa. It doesn't matter if you're in Haiti. It doesn't matter if you're in Mexico. It's just one gospel. Because there's one Jesus Christ, there's one way to heaven, and it's all given to us in the word of God. Verse 10 says, They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. So that's what they agreed upon in the Jerusalem council. Verse 11, Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, so now Peter from Jerusalem has come to visit Paul in Antioch, which would be north from where Peter was. Paul actually says that he withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. So that's a pretty radical thing going on. I mean, Peter is one of the 12 disciples, an apostle. He is the guy we often think about in regards to Christianity and Jesus. Paul didn't care. He didn't care about the person. He cared about the truth. Isn't that interesting? And he records it here for us. And he tells us, when Peter came to Antioch, I had to call him out publicly, is what he's saying. Why did he have to do that? In verse 12, it says, For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So when there were no representatives from the church of Jerusalem, there in Antioch, he'd be hanging out with all the Gentiles. They'd be his buds. He'd be eating non-kosher. He'd be enjoying his liberty. And then these delegates would come from Jerusalem, and then he, got, he, he separated himself from them. And he pretended like he didn't do that. He didn't want them to know that he was, he was eating like that. So in verse 13, it says, And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite 
with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas was getting into it. But Paul says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. See, you might want to circle or highlight that one part where it says the truth of the gospel because that's the whole thing. It doesn't matter the person, the credentials, the authority that's been given to them. Nothing matters except for the truth of the gospel. That is what must remain pure and untainted. The truth of the gospel. And I said to Peter before them all, why did he do it like this? Why didn't he just grab Peter aside and say, buddy, come on, you're doing this thing and they come and then you change your thing. He had to do it publicly because Peter's actions were public and communicated a message to everyone. He had to get this truth of the gospel straight in front of everybody because even Peter was confusing people by his actions. And the purity of the gospel is so important that when it's defamed or corrupted or polluted, then people need to know that that's happening regardless of the person doing it. So he said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of the Gentiles, that's what he was doing before, not living... uh, according to the Jewish laws. He says, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? He's saying you're living like the Gentiles, but now you're trying to get them to do all the Jewish stuff. So he says in verse 15, we who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles. That's how they looked at the Gentiles. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. You might want to circle that. That is the mountaintop that you and I stand on. That is the message of the cross, the message of Jesus, the message of the Bible. This is the whole thing right there. Man is not justified. Justified means being made right with God. We're not justified by the works of the law, by doing things, anything. But by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. You never have to worry about someone knocking at your door and saying they have another gospel of Jesus Christ they would like to present to you. All you have to do is take them right here. That's all you have to do. Verse 17, but if while we seek To be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners. 
Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. So what what he's saying is, if the gospel message means that we are justified by faith, and then we are found to be guilty before the law, because we're not doing the things of repetitive atonement to be right with God, the continual repetitive things we do to be right with God, then are we saying that Christ is he's leading us into sin? What he's pointing out is it's either one or the other. We either save by faith or we're saved by works. And again, if you're saved by works, you have to be perfect 100% of the time as long as you live from the time you're born in thought, deed, and action. And nobody can do that. Verse 18, For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. So do you see what he's getting at? He's, he's telling them now, look, you've been freed from works-based righteousness. And now there are people that are trying to bring you into another gospel and bring you into some sort of effort or work that you need to do to be right with God. And if you do that, you're destroying the work of Christ. If his atonement was not finished on the cross, and now it's up to you to do, this is what the Galatians were doing. When Jesus said it is finished, it is finished to telestai, paid in full. Do you know that's what that means? Paid in full. That means there's nothing else to add or contribute. And when we do, we're taking away from the work of Christ. That's why it's so serious with these false religions and these seemingly nice people that want to visit you and tell you you have to join their church and do their specific thing, it's so bad because they're actually destroying the work of Christ on the cross. And that's why they are abolished from the things of God. That's why they're anathema to God. That's why it's such a serious thing because They're taking away from the cross of Christ, the only way of salvation. Verse 19, for I through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. So what does the the law do? Law is just the Ten Commandments or a moral framework that one would look at to understand the holiness of God, and one would have to meet those holy requirements, those measurements morally to be right with God. And whenever you do, the law is going to destroy you because you can't be good enough. You're going to get crushed by the law. You're going to get crushed every time you you say, God, I'm doing all these things and I'm trying and I just, I want to do more and more and I just can't do it. And every, every time I try to do more, I do less and I, and you're going to get killed by the law, but that's the purpose of the law. So you understand you need to stop trying 
And you need to put your faith in the one who could do it in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, now we're alive to God. So in verse 20, he explains what that looks like. I have been, so that's past tense, right? I have been crucified with Christ. So if you read through the Gospels, you never see Paul on the cross with Jesus. How was he crucified with him? There are two thieves by him, but not Paul. But Paul's saying, I was crucified with him. And that gets to the heart of everything that we're talking about here. How was he crucified with Christ? By faith. It's our faith in him that identifies with him. So when we put our faith in him, that means we have by faith gone through what Jesus went through. He actually did it, but is our faith that identifies with that, and that's how we get the benefit of what Christ did. It's by putting faith in what he did. So when we put faith in what he did, what did he do? He was crucified. So if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you were crucified with him. What does that mean? It means as Jesus died, so too it is no longer us who live, But instead, as Jesus rose from the dead, it's Christ that lives in us. And now the life which we now live here on earth in these bodies, we live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So that is a summary of how to live your life as a Christian. Might want to underline that one too. So then finally... I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. You see why that's such a problem? So if we're going to embrace some sort of work or effort to be right with God, that means that what Christ did was for nothing. It takes away from the cross. Works religion, tradition-keeping, all those things to try to be right with God, all of those things take away from the gospel and the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that is why they are so damning and so wrong and must be avoided at all costs. But on the other hand, how good is the gospel of grace? That is good news. We are free. We are going to heaven. We do have the Holy Spirit. We do have life and that more abundantly. We do have a relationship with Jesus right now. That's the gospel that sets us free. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. I pray that the words that you've given us in your, in your word would be etched on our heart and our mind. And I pray, Lord, that this glorious gospel of grace would be that in which not only that we have put our faith in, but that which we live by. Thank you for the liberty that's in you, Lord Jesus. And we pray 
all this together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming out. And Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday. Have a good night.